danger is stealing in as relapse hums above the den. It's Hello and welcome to episode 308 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Bend, Oregon. I am Andrew Brokus. I will be joined shortly by Jackie Burkhart. Jackie came to my attention via Angela Jordison, who we had on the show on episode 125. I encourage all of you who have not heard that episode to go back and listen to it. I think it's a really great one from the archives. Angela is interesting in a lot of ways, but one of the ways is that uh, she is huge in the Oregon poker scene. Uh, And Jackie Burkhart is one of the more prominent Oregon area poker players. Uh, Not quite professional. She's actually a dental hygienist, but uh, very serious poker player players had a lot of success in recent years, uh, including a deep finish in the 25K Poker Stars Players Championship, final table of the WSOP ladies event, a deep run in the Monster Stack, and uh, quite a few other tournament successes as well. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit to Jackie about uh, the Oregon poker scene and about her poker career in general, about trying to uh, play down her accomplishments and present herself as just a mom and a dental hygienist, when in fact she's uh, quite an accomplished poker player. And we'll have a strategy discussion with Jackie as well, which means we'll dive straight into that interview quite soon. Might as well go ahead and tell you now that our strategy conversations are always brought to you by Tournament Poker Edge. Tournament Poker Edge has been an excellent tournament poker strategy resource for years. It's getting better every day as new videos are added, and especially right now, the videos being added are from my deep run in the 2019 main event of the World Series of Poker. I've got a huge series on there where I'm going hand for hand through uh, every hand that I played, talking through the things that I think I did well and did not do so well, and uh, just generally my approach to thinking about poker tournaments and deep stacked poker in 2019. I think it's some of the best work that I've done. I know it's something that a lot of people were excited about. So if you've been looking for an impetus to join Tournament Poker Edge, this is the time to do it. www.tournamentpokeredge.com. In other exciting strategy news, the Weekend Warrior Premium Podcast Series is finally available. You can pick that up at www.nitcast.com. That's N-I-T-C-A-S-T dot com. Or you can follow the link from the show notes. That is four to five hours of Nate Mavis and myself talking through live poker strategy um, with a focus on on the Weekend Warrior, the player who is a serious recreational poker player, actually I guess much like uh, Jackie Burkhart, a a serious but not professional poker player, somebody with a day job and a limited number of hours that he or she can sink into poker in a given week, but someone who wants to compete uh, seriously and at a high level. How do you make the most of your study time? How do you make the most of your playing time? What are the pitfalls? And just uh, what does good mid-stakes cash game poker strategy look like? We are addressing all of this in the Weekend Warrior Premium Podcast series. So if 
that sounds like you or sounds like something you'd be interested in, www.nitcast.com. Now here's my interview with Jackie Burkhart. Well, Jackie, thank you for taking the time to talk to me, and thank you for your uh, flexibility on the on the starting time here. Yeah, no problem. Um, so I, re- I mean, I, honestly, most of what I know about you is kind of like bits and pieces that I've picked up from talking to Angela or from um, you know, little things I saw saw on Twitter, and then I read the piece that you wrote for um, for Maria Konnikova when you won the entry into the the PSPC. But I don't want to assume that all of our listeners are going to read a five page introduction to you. So, uh, I mean, do you want to start off, you know, telling us how you? got started uh, in being interested in poker? In poker? Um, well, that's actually sort of the topic of that article I wrote that I won the Platinum Pass with. But uh, we were that family that kind of just sat around the table and played, you know, Nicolani poker um, whenever we'd have get-togethers and clearly not serious. Uh, lots of wild cards. Everybody sees the river kind of thing um, just for fun. But so, you know, I, you gain a little bit of card sense from that, not really strategic, but understanding how cards work and, um, you know, what kinds of draws are good and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I've been doing that since I was like eight or nine years old, but I didn't actually start trying to play with any sort of thought process or strategy until about 10 or 11 years ago. And, um, it's hard for me to even remember really what caused me to do that. I just started playing and uh, some bar leagues because I wasn't a mom yet and I don't know I, I just must have heard about these free bar leagues and and then I just became hooked with trying to be you know better than the other opponents and figure it out and you know kind of like solving a puzzle the nerdy part of me liked that so it took off from there but I was terrible for a very long time <laughs> uh, <laughs> not that I thought I was of course I thought I was good I, I still am probably pretty terrible Depending on who you ask. <laughs> no, I mean I'm I'm big. Uh, I'm sure people have heard me say this on the show before, but I I really like that puzzle analogy a lot, especially for someone. Which I mean, this is for most people. This is the arc. Is you at some point go from being a recreational poker player to being? I mean, I know you're not literally a professional poker player, but you seem like a, a pretty serious poker player. I mean, once you're at the point where you want to make money from the game, you have to accept that the things that you enjoyed about playing poker recreationally are you're not necessarily going to be able to enjoy poker in the same way right you right. can't it can't just be i'm gonna try to make hands or like you're saying yeah. when you're playing with your family everybody goes to the river like that doesn't work if you want to make money playing poker so you have to find something else to enjoy about the game besides just the you know making hands or you know seeing how the cards come for you and i think thinking of it as, as a puzzle to solve is yeah the best I mean, that's how i think about it yeah the motivations have changed over time but my interest is still strong but so now i get some of that satisfaction that maybe you used to get by seeing the river and seeing what they had. Um, now I get some of that satisfaction by writing up hand histories for my friends or on forums and then, you know, getting feedback and, you know, whatever, spending like 45 minutes thinking about a hand that in real time I played in 90 seconds right. um, and, and trying to get that satisfaction that way. The, the nerd path. I like <laughs> it, though. <laughs> what was your initial 
method for getting better? You know, when you started saying, well, it's just a bar league, but I want to try to take it seriously or understand this, this puzzle a little bit better. What were the, the resources that you turned to initially to do that? Um, well, I don't remember how I heard about online poker, but, you know, people at the table were probably talking about it or something. And so I went and started playing free roles. And then I started um, reading strategy forums. Like there's this forum that I'm still a part of called Cards Chat, and they have a lot of free roles, but you have to like maintain a certain post count. You have to like be active in the forum to still be eligible for the free rolls. So I would just kind of go in there and um, you know, respond to hands and stuff. And every so often I'll come across one of my old responses and it's so embarrassing. <laughs> like the way that I would advise people to play a hand uh, is not what I would advise now. But um, yeah, I think I just kind of started interacting with people on forums and then playing a lot of free rolls. Um, and then eventually I started reading poker books uh, like, you know, the Harrington series and these kinds of things, which... I don't read poker books anymore, but I read those probably eight or nine years ago, something like that. Yeah, I've, I've had that experience of looking at um, old 2 plus 2, because you can still find like archives of early 2 plus 2 years, and I was a pretty active poster on 2 plus 2 when I first started playing poker, and yeah, there's a lot of stuff on there now, both, both poker content-wise and in terms of how I was talking to people, right? Stuff that I'm not uh, super proud of. To, right. <laughs> it's, it's still floating around out there, but I guess that's just what it is to live in the modern age. Yeah, I think I was always nice to people, but sometimes I was uh, very firm in my opinions of how right I was um, and, you know, I was not correct <laughs> Right, it's, it's my advice. Yeah. It's one thing to have been wrong earlier in your career, but to have been arrogant and wrong is... <laughs> yeah, that, yeah there was, there's some of that, I think, in there, and there probably still is. Do you remember what any of the, like, aha moments were for you? You know, times when you, you kind of took a quantum leap in your thinking, if not your playing? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I don't know. This might have been around five years ago, but I've always kept really good statistics or whatever uh, data on how I'm on my results, like my buy-ins, how much I cash, my min cash rate, all this kind of stuff. And um, when I started to realize that I was making less money with, I'm talking about tournaments now, um, with like a higher cash rate, I realized I was kind of um, min cash focused and losing, losing money in the process. And it didn't hit me all at once, but uh, having to make that shift around not chasing the min cash happened for me like five years ago or something, just from looking at my own data. And it seems like you've made that shift pretty successfully now with a uh, deep run in the monster stack, pretty deep run in the, uh, well, in that, the, the 25K that we were talking about, you, you qualified for. Do you feel like you've put that, um, the inclination to min cash behind you? Yeah, um, it's, I, I had to kind of separate myself from the money and um, just treat it like we were talking about earlier, like a puzzle or like something I'm doing for the, the purity of doing it right. And when I do it that way, I can disconnect myself from the money pretty successfully. And it really helps that I have a job, right? I mean, I work full time. I don't actually ever need to cash a tournament, even though I want to. Um, so, yeah, that took a little bit of, um, I don't know, mental game work, I guess to just divorce myself from the money. The money's real, but you can't let it really cloud your thinking. 
And the, the job is dental hygienist? Yeah, I, I work 40 hours a week uh, as a dental hygienist. Yep. What drew you to that? Um, that was like a backup career. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I was going to be a pro snowboarder, right? That obviously worked out really well. Um, but my, my mom was a dental assistant and, um, she was like, okay, yeah, you know, go be a snowboarder. Why don't you just take these, sorry, there's a lot of static. Uh, why don't you take these prerequisites just to become a hygienist, just in case, you know, they can just work like two or three days a week and then you have that to fall back on and moms can be pretty smart. So I did what she said and, uh, you know, that worked out a lot better than the snowboarding. So I'm glad I did it. How, how close did you get with the snowboarding? Um, I mean, I was successful regionally, but I mean, I never like really made money or anything. I had um, shop sponsors and like product sponsors and I would win uh, competitions in like the Northwest, but I pretty much stopped trying to be a professional when I was like 19. What do, what do the economics of that look like? I mean, I manage this sort of thing. Like, there are quite a few people who would like to be professional snowboarders. I mean, do you have a sense of, you know, what, what the odds for someone in your shoes were? If you had decided to go for it, like, how good of a chance do you think you would have had of, uh, of making it happen? Well, that's actually how I uh, analyzed it and decided to, to stop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> was that uh, I realized I probably could, you know, become like sponsored or whatever but that the economics of that were pretty terrible like you don't actually get health benefits or anything like that it's maybe like a seven to ten year career and so and then the females are much less represented in sponsorship than the males are um and so you know some of like maybe the top 10 females in the world uh were making over thirty thousand a year but most of them were like scraping by and working as bartenders or whatever you know and um I mean, it's probably different now, but this is what it looked like in 2000. And, um, you know, a lot of times you'd travel for these contests and you'd pay your entry fee and like a portion of the female's prize pool would actually go to fund the male's prize pool because <laughs> we had oh, wow. so, so few entries. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you might spend like $600 in travel expenses and first place might be like $1,500 <laughs> in these. Wow competition so yeah when i realized i could work like two days a week as a hygienist and make more than that and then still have five <laughs> days a week to do what i wanted it was kind of obvious after that and then you know, anytime you try to like take something that you love and turn it into a job it, it takes the joy away a little bit so mm -hmm. i i'm happy with my choice not to pursue that anymore how do you think of poker? I mean, do, do you think of poker as, as a job or something approaching a job for you? Or do you feel, still, still think of yourself as just kind of a recreational player who makes money? Yeah, the second thing. I'm, I am I don't really ever want to be a professional player. I think at times I've daydreamed about it. But um, then when I really look at what the lifestyle is like, I, I like, you know, doing my regular job, knowing what my hours are. I always make money. You don't run bad in dental hygiene. <laughs> you know, every day you show up, you make money. And... Um, you know, then I can look forward to these these poker trips on my calendar. And when I get into the casino, it's exciting. And it's like a little mini vacation and I might make money. Uh, and I think if I was there every day, it wouldn't feel that way, probably, <laughs> is my guess. And honestly, I mean, the economics of traveling to play poker, which I think you would kind of have to. So, I mean, I know you're you're kind of like outside of Portland. What are, what are your local casino options even like? 
Um, well, we have really good local card rooms. And there's plenty to play in Portland. Um, but as far as tournaments, you know, it's hard to find a buy-in of over four or $500. And those are only right. like a couple, couple times a month. Um, but, you know, they run, they run nice cash games with no rake. Um, but as far as actually traveling, you know, I kind of have to get on a plane. I mean, we have a couple tribal casinos around, but they don't really run frequent enough tournaments either. So between all the tribal casinos that are within three or four hours of me all of them together probably run like six tournament series a year and they're not very big so yeah i'll frequently it's easier to go to vegas honestly because it's just a two-hour flight and it's not very expensive uh yeah and you've got uh, a family also right yeah i have a husband of uh we've been married 14 years and then we have a 10 year old son does does he play poker at all? Or is he, I guess he's kind of getting to the age where he can uh, understand it if you wanted him to understand it. He doesn't seem really very interested, which is fine with me. I mean, we <laughs> play around the kitchen table with the cousins and the grandparents sometimes, the same as when I was growing up. But, you know, it's that same level of you know, not really strategic. Everyone's just joking around and trying to bluff each other, which is impossible, by the way. Uh, <laughs> you can't bluff people in a wild card game with five cents on the line. But, yeah. Does it does it give you any like cool mom clout, or is, I mean, is it uncool because you're doing it? Uh, I don't think it's probably uncool. Uh, I mean, he'll he'll brag sometimes. Like uh, when we we all got to go to the Bahamas for the uh, when I won the Platinum Pass this year. Oh, that's cool. I I brought them along, and so. Um, we'd run into people, you know, at the um, slides or whatever. And if they we started talking to them in line, he'd be like, oh, my mom's a professional poker player. She's going <laughs> to win $5 million or, <laughs> which I did not <laughs> win any millions of dollars, but I won enough. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think he thinks it's kind of cool, but uh, I'm quick to correct that I am not a professional poker player. It's a side hustle. Would it be accurate to say that the the monster stack and then the, the the PSPC have been kind of your like I mean a break I guess isn't quite the right word but those have been sort of your 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 crowning achievements or things that like took you to another level as a player? Um, yeah, the monster stack was the first like significant cash I had. That was in twenty fifteen, and then I did um, final table the ladies event last oh, year. Yeah. Which was right around the same. I've had a lot of caches right in that $30,000 neighborhood. Well, not a lot. I've had three. <laughs> Feels like a lot to me. Um, yeah, I don't know. Those, those, those were definitely big helps because until you actually have a decent payday, it's hard to know if what you're doing is worthwhile or um, if it's ever going to pay off. And... Um, so, yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot of luck involved as well, but it still feels... If nothing else, to tell your friends and family and people who don't understand poker, like, look, see, it works sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But PSPC, I imagine, was much bigger than anything that you'd played prior to that. Yeah, by a, by a large <laughs> margin. <laughs> I can. I think I can safely say that will be the only twenty five thousand dollar tournament I probably ever play. That's fine with me. <laughs> Not looking How to do that on the regular. 
how did you approach that? I mean, I guess it was it was a, a free roll for you, so maybe psychologically. I don't know. Was it was it uh, psychologically challenging to to approach that? Were you freaked out? Um, I think I did well. I um, Poker Stars did a really good job of kind of rolling out the red carpet for all the Platinum Pass winners, and so they created a Facebook group that was just for us. And all of their pros, or most of their pros, gave pre-scheduled um, one-hour like coaching not not like private coaching but group uh whatever facebook meeting lessons and they'd give it tips and advice on like how a recreational player should approach this event and um i i watched all of those there was some really good advice in those um and felix schneider's had one that he really helped me with the mindset stuff of you know, most of these people are going to have something on the line. They're going to have $25,000 to use, lose. And all we can do is just good things. Nothing can happen to us. Nothing bad can happen. <laughs> and um, I found myself, you know, kind of repeating his, his was a lot of like mindset and like body preparation, mind preparation stuff. But I found myself repeating that uh, every time I had to shove all in and like hope for a fold or hope to win a flip. I just was repeating that to myself, like, I have nothing to lose. They have $25,000 to lose. I have nothing to lose. Uh, it got me far enough. <laughs> That's nice. In, in terms of preparing to play against players who are maybe of a caliber that you didn't encounter very often before, was there anything different you did on, like, your, your studying to prepare for that? Yeah, so I took a portion of, um, you know, the um, package had $5,000 worth of expenses. I took a portion of that and then bought the Nick Petrangelo course, and I went through that whole course. I, t I attempted to go through the whole course two times. I didn't quite get it through it two times. Um, a lot of it was over my head, but um, some of it wasn't. I mean, I, I think I absorbed a lot. And not so much that I was going to try to play like a solver, which is because it's a solver-based course, but... Um, everyone's thinking and how they're approaching me but um the, then the way i sort of put myself in those situations was basically i just uh decided that um because on average they have a much bigger skill edge than i do and so they're going to be, be able to wear me down in like a lot of small pots mm -hmm. so when i would play pots with the players i perceived to be better than me which was pretty much all of them I would just try to play big pop. I was um, not to get it in, so I oh, no. I have, you know, 50% equity or whatever. That's pretty good for me. It's pretty good for me to get 50% equity against a player like this. And uh, maybe he'll make a bad fold because he doesn't want to flip. And I don't, I don't mind flipping, so. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, I think it's, it's also just great to have the humility or whatever to to recognize that and to say look, you know, I'm, I'm not a favorite against this player and so like you said like 50 50 is a win for you it's yeah. a loss for him because he's here he should expect that on average he's going to do better than that if he's a better player and then you know so like a lot of people understand this concept when they're playing tournaments of like you don't want to uh or people are always like, well, I didn't want to take a flip. I didn't want to take a high variance line. Like, and I mean, nobody wants to go out of a, a tournament, but that really applies mostly when you're expecting to have a big edge. And then, as you're saying, like the, the flip side of that is when you don't have a big edge, it is like variance is your is your friend, and like that's yeah. you know, and, and as we know, anyone can win a, a, a poker tournament. You just have to get lucky. So you kind of want to um, put yourself in a spot where if you do get lucky, it's going to be 
big. You know, yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. you want so, to increase the role of luck in the game. I think that's perfect. I just kind of took the opposite approach of how I look at these $200 tournaments where I'm trying to play a ton of small pots because I feel like I have an edge over them and I don't want to play these big pots. And I just sort of, you know, took the opposite approach. But yeah, whenever I could, if there was a hand I didn't feel like folding, I tried to put the last bet in and then let them decide. And it got me to day four. Yeah, that's pretty great. How did you find people were, um, or I mean, did you have a sense of like how people perceived you? Did most people know or, or guess you think that you were a, a qualifier? Yeah, it was pretty easy to tell who the qualifiers were. And that was, I had a little bit of a strategy going in of, um, you know, I'm going to, uh, they don't need to know that I've actually been studying. I'm just going to play up the, I'm a mom, I'm a dental hygienist, you know, uh, <laughs> I want to pass. And I, I mean, I, it's the truth. So I would just talk about it every chance I got so that if I put my whole stack in, they're just going to figure I have it or something along those lines. Um, but um, Mustafa Kanit, he saw through me real quick. <laughs> he was the only, I mean, probably several of them got, you know, saw through it by the end, but he saw through it so fast. Like I, I raised the river. I don't remember the exact action, but I was on the button and he was the big blind and I raised the river with just Jack high with the bluff. He like, I thought it looked like a blocker bet on the river. So I raised and uh, he snap called me and I showed my hand and then he says, he pulled out his camera and for his Instagram audience and he says, look at this girl. She says, I am dental lady. I am platinum <laughs> And then she check or she raised river as bluff. I don't come from, <laughs> it was, I don't remember exactly how he said it, but it was pretty funny. And then we yeah. high fived afterwards. Um, yeah, he did not fall for it. Not for five seconds. <laughs> but I think, I don't know. I pulled it up sometimes. Did you find it was increasingly difficult to uh, like maintain that equanimity of I've got nothing to lose, guy, I've got nothing to lose? Like, or, I mean, because I feel like once you make day four, you do have something to lose. Like, you have a big stack in the twenty-five k. Um, did it get more difficult to keep that attitude? Um, I think it got easier because I had made enough money that I uh, knew I was profiting, and I didn't have a big <laughs> stack going to day four. I had thirteen bigs, and I. I the, the shorter my stack, the fewer mistakes I'm going to make. You know, I'm going to make a lot more mistakes at 200 big blinds than I am at 13. So um, I felt like, you know, what was going to happen was going to happen. And I probably wasn't going to mess it up unless I got a, somehow got a big stack. Then I'd be ripe for the pickings again. So. Did, did running deep in that change your approach to playing poker the rest of this year or, or the rest of your life i mean do, do you now feel like oh, i've got a little bit more of a bankroll i can play some bigger stuff or hey that was fun i'm gonna try to travel a little bit more D did it change your plans at all um yeah a little bit like um it was such a fun experience for my family that uh i do think that we want to try to go to some you know, maybe like once a year or so, try to go travel somewhere and I can play poker and we can see a new town. So we're looking at maybe going to the um, Irish Poker Open in April. Actually, I'm pretty sure we're going to go. I just have to look at the dates. Um, and, you know, the bankroll helps. Um, but, you know, I have I have a job. So, I mean, it's it's just nice. It just makes it just takes a little bit of pressure off. But um, I like playing anyways but it, i think what it did do is just um you know i didn't boss anybody i wasn't like running over my table or anything like that but it just gave me confidence that i can hold my own like i can i can play with some of the best people in the world and 
you know, they're going to, they're going to wear me down over time, but I can hold my own just fine. And so then when I end up at a table in a thousand dollar tournament with someone that I perceive as like a little bit better than me and not necessarily world-class, I don't feel as intimidated as I probably did two years ago, you know? Yeah, that's great. How did all this go over at the office? Uh, I mean, I, I, I feel like people who know even less about poker, there's a tendency to think, oh, hey, you just made like a year's salary in one weekend. That's amazing. You know, they, they don't fully understand. You yeah. Know, sometimes you lose also. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, how, how did you explain this to the, the coworkers? Yeah, just kind of like you said, I mean, you know, they think, oh, my gosh, well, why do you even work here anymore? You know, why don't you just do that all the time? It's like, well, because, you know, <laughs> one out of uh, eight times I will lose money. Um, and then, you know, they have their their questions that uh, we're all probably used to answering from our friends and family. Like, do you count cards? Do you wear sunglasses? Uh, they're really kind of uh, interested in the like the TV effect, you know, right. of what they've seen on TV. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think they think it's cool, uh, or something, but, and they think I'm rich. I'm definitely not rich. You know, I, I, I did sell some action, uh, on the, uh, 25k and on the main event this year. So it's not like I keep all that money. Um, yeah, I don't know, but it's fun. I like making money for my investors. I like paying people. Feels good. <laughs> <laughs> How much of uh, WSAP do you do? Um, that's kind of what I save all my vacation time for the whole year. So this year was the, the biggest schedule I played. So I took four separate trips and played like 11 events. Um, so I ended up being there probably about three weeks, but spread out over you know a few chunks of time. And then, but for the last several years, I'll usually take two trips with like four target events. And yeah, I like it. Yeah, I'm not really buying this just a dental hygienist, just a mom thing either. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's true. I, I work 40 hours a week. I don't have a ton of time to do other stuff. Does your family come with you when you do, uh, when you go to Vegas? No, um, I brought them a couple times to like tribal casinos and to Vegas once. And um, it's just not really that fun for everybody because I'm playing poker the whole time. And then um, my husband gets sick of being kind of like constant daycare guy. Like he wants to be able to go out and have fun. It'd probably be better now that my son's 10 and he can do more stuff. But the times we tried it before, he was littler. And so, um, yeah. no, I, I leave them when I go to Vegas. But and there's like still was, not a whole lot for a 10-year-old to do in Las Vegas. No, not about that much. And, you know, you, there's this kind of... Uh, guilt is the best word I can think of. But um, it's easy. It's much easier to focus when I don't have a little face, you know, wanting to spend time with me or wanting my attention. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I just need my my mind to be fresh and clear to play my best. So I just have some girlfriends that I, that play poker and we travel together and that works for us. And does that include, uh, Angela? Yes. The lovely Angela Jordison. Uh, she's teaching me cash. So I, I never played cash for years and years. And now that I'm actually getting a, 
decent win rate, I'm like, wow, I can't believe I just only did tournaments. This is like consistent. <laughs> you can consistently win in cash. So she's a very good cash player. Um, I'm sort of, I'm a fledgling clash cash player, but I can win now, finally. And this is uh, No Limit exclusively? I only play No Limit, yeah. I don't feel like I have time to be decent at multiple games. She plays yeah, lots I, of I think that's... But- yeah. yeah, that's what I was thinking, just if, if Angela specifically is the one coaching you, maybe she's trying to teach you PLO8 as well. Yeah, she plays uh, both. She prefers PLO8, but, she, you know, if she wants to play as much as she wants to play, she has to play Hold'em, too. She's good at that. Right. Yeah. Uh, who else is in the crew? Anyone, any names that I would recognize? I don't know if you would recognize or not, but uh, Liz Tedder is one of my other best buddies from a long time and she travels with us um that's it that's the that's the three of us <laughs> two or three <laughs> of us usually okay yeah I've, I've i've seen that name probably just from you and uh angela interacting with her on on twitter yeah probably um anything else you want to talk about career-wise or you want to move on and, and uh talk about that hand that you sent us uh i can't think of anything else so let's talk about a hand all right. Um, do you have it in front of you? Do you want to walk us through it, or do you want me to just kind of read what you what you sent in? Um, why don't you read it? Because I don't have it right now, but I'm going to pull that up in a minute there. Okay. So this was from a $2,500 buy-in tournament. I'm guessing this was part of that series that just went down on the uh, on the Oregon coast? Yes. This was their high roller $2,500 tournament. Their main event is 800 and then okay. it's their high roller event. So we're high rolling. We're in the middle levels, <laughs> still a long way from the money. Uh, you say you have about 160k at the uh, 600, 1200 level, so about 135 big blinds, yep. making you the second largest stack at the table. Yep. Folds to you in the cutoff where you have King of Hearts, Jack of Diamonds. You open to 2700, which I would say is uh, uncontroversial. Great. And it folds around to the big blind who calls, and you say he is the only player at the table who covers you. He has only slightly more than you do with 150 big blinds. Yeah. Uh, and you say, I recognize him as one of the better players in the local area. I know he consistently gets good results, but I haven't played with him too much. Yep. And the flop is Ace of Clubs, Jack of Spades, Nine of Spades. He checks to you. You again have King Jack offsuit with no spade, uh, no club either, for whatever that's worth. Yeah. Um, this is this is the first real decision. What are your your thoughts here on betting versus checking? Well, in the moment, I I thought about whether or not to bet. If I was going to bet, I was going to bet small, and I I think I was a little bit. Um, like scared is the wrong word. Maybe I was scared. I didn't want to end up playing a huge pot with him since I had a, a pretty big stack relative to the table. The average stack at this time was probably like 70,000. Um, and so I didn't want to clash with the only guy who covered me for a huge pot. So I decided I probably didn't have a free street hand. And so the street that I decided to check back was a flop. Um, I think I'm supposed to bet like almost as soon as I checked I thought about some of my training and I was like, oh, I have a, I have a range advantage on this board. I think I'm supposed to bet range for a small size, but I didn't. 
Yeah, I mean, this actually surprised me because I, I think in your shoes, I would have checked this also. But when I mean, I just did sort of a quick mock up in, in Piosover when you sent me this hand. I didn't put a lot of work into the starting ranges or anything. But uh, yeah, Pio actually was betting flop with like 96% frequency or something. Um, I mean, for what it's worth, King Jack was when it did check, King Jack was like the main hand that it, it checked. But the checking range was so tiny that I think uh, if, if I had known that that were the Piosover output, I probably would just yeah i think i think i was supposed to um i've done a fair amount of studying of ace high boards and like the ace wheel wheel boards are the ones we can check back a lot more um but the ace broadway kind of more draw heavy boards we were supposed to we're supposed to bet nearly always i remembered learning that and then as soon as i checked i was like whoops <laughs> yeah and i think it, it, it can be a little trait or at least the way that i used to think about these situations like pre pre pious which i imagine is where a lot of listeners still are is that just the, the idea of like wanting to bet a more polarized range so you know when you bet it should be either it's clearly a value bet or it's clearly a bluff and um with king jack it can be a little hard to figure out well wait are we betting i mean Obviously, some worse hands can call, but like a lot of your opponent's calling range is going to be an ace, and that's not really that great for you. And that, I think, is, is why it's so important that if you do bet, it's going to be a small size because yeah. you need to make sure, like, if, if, the larger you bet, the more you're going to be isolating your opponent to just having an ace when he calls, and that's real bad for you. And the more that you can, you know, if he's getting five to one on his call, then yeah, he's going to call with worse jacks, he's going to call with gut shots, he's going to call with worse nines uh, or with nines, and then you're going to start. Um, yeah, so the, I mean, the the other big advantage of betting the flop is just that there's so few hands that you would want to check on the flop anyway. You know, it would almost all be like medium strength, probably like pocket kings, pocket queens, king jack, queen jack, ten nine. It would all be like very obviously medium strength hands. So then you can't even really keep the pot small because as soon as you check the flop, your opponent is like, oh, she wants to play a small pot. Well, screw you. And then he can yeah. just bet pot on the turn or whatever you know like it's very hard to avoid flagging your hand as medium strength by yeah. checking behind the slot because it's you know you don't really want to slow play your strong hands it's very scary even if you have pocket aces there's a lot of bad turn cards where you don't really want to check that back so then when you check back it's hard to have strong hands after checking yeah um okay so you you check behind which turns out maybe you should have bet but i'm pretty sure in game i would have checked behind also um and the eight of diamonds comes on the turn. Your opponent yep. bets two thousand. Mm -hmm. This strikes me as not particularly close. Yeah, I felt like calling was the only thing to do. Uh, he can have straight draws, flush draws, um, worse jacks, total bluffs. So, and I don't want to raise so. It's like a little, little more than quarter pot, and so I just call. And now we get the river, which is the jack of spades. So final board, and actually, I guess we're we're yeah. We're I, said the, I said the spade wrong. There weren't two jack of spades in the deck. It, okay, it, so it, jack it did not complete a flush. And, and there was a flush draw on the flop. There was a flush draw on the flop, and then it's a different jack. Okay. I just so we'll call I've it, said the we'll wrong. We'll call it the jack of hearts. Jack okay. of hearts on the river. So the final board is. Uh, 
ace of clubs, jack of spades, nine of spades, eight of diamonds, jack of hearts. So you've yeah. rivered trips. The fish does not get there. Uh, and you said the pot now has 11,200. And I'm thinking about how much to value bet when I realize that my opponent is tanking and is going to bet. He tanks for longer than average and then bets 24,000 into the pot that has about 11K. So this is really a bet of a slightly over two times the pot, but basically two times yeah. the pot. Basically, 2x. The way that I would... So, I mean, I think we can... Or I would take raising off the table. I will yeah. say that Pius Sovereign actually does raise here a little bit. I guess to get your opponent off of a set of nine... I didn't look closely at, at what was the objective of, of raising. I think that if you're raising here, it's a bluff. Um, so I suppose it's to get your opponent off of, like, like pocket nines and pocket eights, or maybe even jack nine. I mean, Queen I guess 10. you have, like... Yeah, yeah, that's right. Queen ten's an important one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, so like blocking the jack is is a pretty big deal, uh, particularly when it comes to raising. Right? You're not going to run into quads ever. You're not going to run into ace jack very often. So yeah, I mean, I, I think as as a human, I'm probably taking raising off the table, but I can kind of understand why why Pio Salvador would have a raising range here. I also think like even very good human opponents are probably a little more polarized than they should be in this situation when they bet this large, yeah. where which also like removes the desirability of raising here. Yeah, I never considered raising. Um, yeah, I don't think I would have either. I was I was considering folding. <laughs> Yeah, and I was just really trying to construct his range. Um, I spent a long time thinking, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I kind of decided I didn't think he could have queen 10 for the straight um, because he would have turned the straight, and I would think he would not bet so small if he turns the gin card like that, when there's still a flush draw out there, it seems like he would either bet large or check raise or um, not bet like a little more than quarter pot. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. Um, But then to go small when he hits the straight and then to go huge when the board pairs, it didn't feel like a straight to me. So even though I knew queen 10 was out there, just, I didn't feel like he had queen 10. So, so now if it's uh, not queen 10, it's bluffs or boats or potentially worse jacks and i have the i have the nut jack that doesn't make a boat so i ended up i ended up calling but i was i don't know i was very conflicted about it now i I hear you i mean the, the way that i kind of encourage people to think about calling on the river is first off just to decide whether the whether the strength of your hand actually matters in other words is it possible that your opponent might be value betting you know, or mistakenly value betting a hand that's worse than yours if the answer to that question is yes then it's almost always correct to call i mean your opponent would have to be making a pretty big mistake to like where he thinks he's value betting worse and then you're actually folding a better hand correctly like that, right. there's some someone's making a big range mistake if, if that's happening so that's often the place i would start is just by saying do i think my opponent could be mistakenly value betting a hand that's worse than this uh, i think you're probably right to discount queen 10 even though in theory he probably should play it this way sometimes i think that's something a lot of people struggle to do to like you say to do that small small size on the turn followed by a big size on the river um yeah i probably wasn't um thinking about it the way you're saying um i the what i was the, the thought process i was saying to myself was basically that 
of the hands I can actually reach the river with in this manner, this might be the actual strongest hand I could have. Like maybe I would check back pocket aces on the flop sometimes. Um, but I, I really couldn't see how I could end up at the river with a stronger hand without raising somewhere along the way or betting somewhere along the way. So I just kind of used um, distribution to say, well, if I fold this, I guess I'm folding everything. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a really important like gut check to do to, to see if you can identify some other hand. Like if you're not going to call with this, then you know to try to identify some other hand that would be your your calling range instead. You know, strictly speaking, that wouldn't have to be a matter of this is the strongest hand I could have. I mean, there are some situations where like I mean, arguably this is a better calling hand than Queen Ten, right? Even though Queen Ten is like a stronger hand, right? Blocking the jack might be more important, especially if you think your opponent is never betting Queen 10 himself, then uh, it might just be that, or if you think he's never betting worse trips. I mean, if he is going to have worse hands, then the strength of your hand matters. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, so like, and, and that's kind of why I say, like, that. that's the first question is, is there a chance that. Yeah. I thought it was possible. Like when I when I got to my decision to call, I decided to myself that I would call the king jack and I would fold the queen jack. And the reason I was saying I would fold the queen jack was because it's just one less combo that I beat if he's value betting a worse hand. Like I was like, okay, he could be value betting queen jack or jack ten, and I beat those. Um, and I know it's really strange sounding because I said I didn't think he would have queen ten, which is a stronger hand. So I mean, my thought process isn't really consistent. Um, I don't know. For some reason, well, I just really didn't feel like he had queen thought, ten. The reason you thought he didn't have queen ten, though, had more to do with the turn action, right? Not that you didn't think he would overbet queen ten on the river if he got there with it. Just that you didn't think he would have bet so small on the turn with queen ten. That's what I thought. I mean, I don't know if that's accurate, though. Um, like I said, I, I haven't played with this player a lot, and he seems to be mm -hmm. competent, so he might show up with all those weird lines. But uh, whatever you want to call it, my gut feeling, my spidey sense, I didn't feel like. I felt like if I, I felt like I was going to call and get shown a boat. That's that's what I would th kind of expected to happen. So I felt kind of dumb about calling. And um, I, mean, I still don't know if it's actually a good call. Even if Pio Silver says it's a call, I don't know if he's doing what the Pio range says he should be doing. Right. Um, I still don't know, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I think they're like when it comes to overbetting. I think this is a case where a lot of people, even a lot of good players, are not well balanced. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's weighted towards value. I mean, there's some chance that, especially if he doesn't know you well, maybe he thinks that you're vulnerable to getting run over or whatever. And maybe he could be over. He could be weighted towards bluffs when he overbets mm -hmm. the river. That yeah. doesn't, you know, he wouldn't expect you to, to ever hero call against an, an overbet. Um, so I mean, I do think like having a jack in your hand is a very big deal. Uh, honestly, like I, I doubt you're ever supposed to fold a jack here. Period. Mm -hmm. in theory. Uh, just because of I mean, when you have a good jack, there's the chance that your beating is is jacks, and even with a less good jack, you're blocking so much potential value inch. Um, yeah. It, so I mean, in general, bluff catching on the river should be a roughly neutral EV proposition. If it's just a matter of okay, I I lose when he's value betting, I win when he's bluffing. Um, if you don't have any insight into whether he's going to be weighted towards bluffs or weighted towards value, you should be just kind of breaking even when you call with bluff catchers, which makes it not a very appealing thing to do. The big exception to that is when you have a really good blocker in your hand. So if you do block a jack, then he should end up being 
kind of has a really right. pretty appealing for you. So yeah. um, I'm I'm happy to see that you ended up calling here. I, yes. I think I mean there are definitely people where I would say, oh, that guy's just a giant nit. He's never going to have anything other than value here. I mean, there's plenty of people that I would fold yeah. against exploitative. If you respect him as a as a player, I think you are supposed. To, I mean, I'm again, I, like like you, I'm not happy about it. I wasn't yeah. hoping that this is going to happen on the river, but I do think it's a sort of sigh and like, ah, oh, well, I guess I have to call with this. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, I can think of dozens of people right now. I'm thinking of their faces that I play with on a normal basis that I would snap fold the river. <laughs> uh, right, right, right. But he just wasn't one of them. So, yeah. Well, and the other thing that's nice here that we did mention is you don't have a spade in your hand, which means that he has uh, lots of missed spade draws that he, yep. like, you don't block any of it. Like, I think those are the, you know, among his, his more likely potential bluffs, and you, yeah. you completely un those, which also makes your call, uh, make, makes your hand a little bit more appealing as a calling hand. Yeah, and I didn't say that when I was talking about my thought process, but because um, I kind of quickly moved away from what is he bluffing with, on, and I spent more time on the what is his value um, side of things, but that was one of the things that I, I did quickly when I saw his bet was, it's like, okay, I don't have any spades, uh, he can have all, he can have a lot of missed spades, missed spade combo draws, etc. Um, but I, I kind of got through that part of my thought process really quickly, but yes, that did help. Cool. Well, I mean, I, I think that the way you thought through this in game was uh, was was very good, very very on point. I, likewise, you know, in, in in our conversations now, I, I think you're uh, approaching it quite well. How did how did it work out for you in game? Uh, he had jack ten, so I had the better jack and won the pot. And later, when I was talking about it with my friends, I actually think it's a it's a pretty cool bet by him. Uh, he has you know the straight blocker and the boat blocker um so i think that he's hoping i don't know he's hoping to get called by i think he's hoping to get heroed by an ace um but yeah i think that he he kind of i think he made a good bet i think i don't know i thought it was interesting having both blockers yeah i I'm pretty sure Jack Ten was in Pio's range for overbetting on on the river. I mean, I do feel like he's like I think Jacks are a very big part of your check back range. Um, I suppose like maybe you if, if you're checking back. I mean, maybe there's stuff like kings or queens or bad aces. Um, it actually feels a little ambitious to me. I, I feel like I would want a better kicker in his shoes to um, to overbet because I mean he is going to have this problem of running into you know he's he like he's not going to be ahead when you have a jack. You're not going to have any jacks in your range, right? Um, yeah, because they make a boat or their pans. I probably wouldn't play. Yeah, and like on the one hand, he does block a jack pretty hard, but I also think jacks are a pretty big part of your check. Like there aren't that many hands that you're supposed to be checking in this spot in the first place, or that you're likely to check in the first place. And mm -hmm. jacks do loom pretty large in that uh, in that checking range. So I, I think like his, this is a spot where his kicker is sort of important once the pot starts getting as big as he's making it when he bets more than two x on the river. But like yeah. I said, it, I mean. I, I'm pretty sure Pio Sauber did have uh, did have Jack Ten in its value range, but it also is a little more ambitious than um, probably real world you would be on your on your river calling. Also, I do kind of question whether he has as many bluffs as he's supposed to in this spot. I mean, I, my experience has been that even a lot of very good players kind of struggle to find overbet 
bluffs. Like they convince themselves that if they're bluffing, a large bet could still be like pot, and that might be enough yeah. to cause you whatever hands you're you're gonna fold. Um, which is another reason why it might be kind of difficult. Because like, I mean, you are talking about you know maybe you wouldn't have called if you had a slightly worse. Jet. Like it sounds like Jack Nine, you probably would have folded, which makes it. Kind well, of Jack. Mistake. Jack nine's a boat. Um, yeah, so the, the next worst yeah. Jack is Jack seven, which I probably don't play. Gosh. I don't know, but yeah, well, I don't know. I'm still, in, I'm still a little stumped. <laughs> <laughs> you made a good call. That's the important part. And it propelled me to the min cash. <laughs> well, min cashing a 2,500 is, uh, is not chump tinge. Yeah. It actually feels like fine. Uh, you know, it's you know, when you min cash a, $250 tournament, it feels a little annoying, but this one was fine. <laughs> uh, so I think you said up front you didn't have anything you were you were looking to promote, but I'll give you one more chance in case there's anywhere you want to uh, to direct people. Um, I really don't. I, I'm not, not promoting anything. Shameless self-promotion, that's about it. <laughs> Favorite Favorite movie, favorite band, anything like that? Uh, my favorite movie is probably The Big Lebowski, as old as it is. Nice. I can I can watch it over and over again. Um, favorite band changes all the time. I don't know. I like the old stuff. I like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and new stuff. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, it was uh, great talking to you. Thanks for your, your patience and your accommodation. And hopefully we'll get a chance to meet in person sometime. Yes, I'm sure we will. You're only a couple hours away right now. So True. you'll have to come out to Portland. <laughs> All right. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Some kind of pill Or the devotion of a car And the light of the fair passage of a bill And who will sign us into law I know you won't, you won't, you won't, you won't Will you, you won't, you won't, you won't, you won't Will you, you won't, you won't Once upon a time, there was a blue dog. What was the blue dog's name? Hmm. Zero. <laughs> and what was Zero's favorite food? Uh, doggy treats. And what did Zero like to do for fun? Jump in the yard. One day, Zero was eating dog treats and jumping in the yard, and along came a gigantic what? Monster. Zero was eating dog treats and jumping in the yard when along came a gigantic monster. The gigantic monster said, Hello, Zero. My name is... Record. <laughs> Hello, Zero. My name is Record. I would like to be your friend. Can I jump in the yard with you? And what did Zero say? No! <laughs> and then Record said, 
Okay, if you won't let me jump in the yard with you, then I'll do... Eat you. <laughs> and then Zira said, Oh no, don't eat me. And he started digging a hole. He dug and dug all the way to... The bottom. <laughs> he dug and dug all the way to the bottom. And the monster named Record looked around and he said, Huh, where did that dog go? I guess I'll just... And then what did the monster do? Wait. <laughs> I guess I'll just wait for Zero to come out of the hole. So Zero waited inside the hole. And the monster named Record waited outside of the hole. And they kept waiting until eventually Zero got hungry. And he said, hmm, I want some more dog treats, but I'm afraid to come out of the hole. Then what did he do? He dug a hole to his home. He kept digging and, he, and it followed the dirt to his home, so he did that. He dug a hole all the way through the dirt into his home, and then he got himself some more doggy treats. The monster looked around and he said, Hey, that doggy was really thinking. <laughs> Zira said, Thank you, monster, for the nice compliment. Maybe you're not so bad after all. And then what did he do? He gobbled up him. <laughs> he gobbled up the monster? Okay, that was a good story. Let's listen to it, it back. Work.